Support for Melbourne Food and Wine comes from Lavazza. Hand-picked, slowly roasted and produced in limited quantities, Kaffa Forest Coffee is Lavazza's newest single-origin coffee. Hailing from Ethiopia, Kaffa comes from the original coffee plant. Try it for yourself. Consumerism, heal thyself. What if us getting a taste for the very creatures that are wreaking havoc on the environment were the answer to the world's invasive species woes? Could the market save us where regulation, policy and government have failed? Could our appetites be the answer? I'm Pat Nurse, and welcome to Melbourne Food and Wine. Earlier this year, at the Theatre of Ideas, which we staged with the help of the New York Times, we were lucky enough to be joined by Tasmanian artist Kirsha Keshela. It's been Kirsha's lifelong quest to turn flaws into features, and her latest milestone in this work has been the publication of a sumptuous new art book called Eat the Problem. Joining Kirsha on stage to explore the idea that invasive species can be as much a delicious feast as an ecological nightmare is journalist Jill Duplay. Jill, an author of Truth, Love and Clean Cutlery, a new guide to sustainable and ethical dining, isn't afraid to throw Kirsha a curly one right up front and asks her if Eat the Problem is too beautiful a work to deal with so ugly an issue. It has to be beautiful because it's confronting. You know, there's scary things in there, so you, it has to be beautiful. And I think that's sort of a... I like the idea that if you're exploring an idea that's kind of disgusting or scary or offensive, that you would then be seduced into it because the form is so pleasing and gorgeous and the flavor is so divine that's what's necessary to change our thinking about some of these species it's incredibly sensible too it does seem to be an incredibly simple solution to a real a very real problem to turn our own hunger and our own greed into a force for good instead of um yeah absolutely we're consuming all of the time we're just consuming creatures so why shouldn't we, if you look at all the traditional cultures, the reason they have these beautiful cuisines is because they worked with the ingredients they were surrounded by in abundance. What did they have in abundance? That is the cuisine. And so what do we have in abundance now? It's not always a native plant or animal. No, it isn't. Um, and so I'll read out a, a few of the things within the book that there are recipes for. Red fox, for instance, and camel, the European carp which is a difficult fish to cook, uh, and some of our chefs are addressing that. Feral pig, dandelion, brush-tail possum, brown tree snake, which I love. <laughs> this gets back to the art of cooking, to the very soul of creativity. How are you going to cook a snake? You know, understand uh, in the coals, etc. But how much more intelligent to turn it into snake jerky, otherwise known as snurky. <laughs> there suddenly you've got this beautiful story. You've got a very memorable and delicious product at the end of it. And there's a moral dilemma here perhaps or a quandary where a lot of these invasive species and the plants are now well at home here. They've actually settled in. They've dug in. So if we were to not be creative and to just go in and go, we're taking them out. We're just poisoning, killing, culling, whatever, and taking them out. That could do more damage. 
Yeah, I mean, a lot of ecologists will say you can't address some of the invasive issues because you'll, you'll do more damage than harm, but it's pretty rare that that's the case. I mean, even when, that, when say, an, an invasive tree is providing habitat for a lot of native animals, well, okay, sure, if the native tree is just gone, then you might want to just go with a new thing, right? You've gone too far. But if the native tree is being outcompeted by the invasive tree, well, then you generally slowly remove them, and then the natives have a chance to kind of come back in. You can always do it. There's always a way to do it. It's more of the moral question of should one mess with the ecosystem at all and is there such a thing as invasive and you know, when is it appropriate for humans to meddle? I mean, it's huge. And that's probably why the book took so long. It ju I just had to think about that for so long. And everyone has a different opinion about it. I think the stories behind these things are, are the, the truth and, and the art of it. But the different approaches too give it such incredible energy. And of course you had different approaches because you had artists and chefs and chefs always think they're artists and artists all cook. Did you nominate artist dish, artist food, chef food? What happened? Tell me the process. So we created a list and invited the list of, it was exactly the same invitation for the artists and the chefs. You just had to create food or art out of one of these invasive species, and your food or art had to be monochrome. That was the rule, because as you can see, it's a rainbow book, so it has to fit somewhere. So we provide this whole exhaustive list of like 30 different invasive plants and animals to choose from. And then we get the returns, and it's just like, oh, artist, yep, human. Another artist, human, another artist, human, human, human. Every artist wanted to do human. And we didn't put human on the list. <laughs> it wasn't on the list. But they all said, well, the most invasive animal is hum are humans, so I'll be doing that. So anyway, we had to stop that at a certain point. Like, no, okay, enough humans. You have to choose something else. And then the chefs were sea urchin. Uni, 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 uni. I'll be doing uni, I'll be doing uni. And um, same deal, we had to cut them off. But we do have a couple of chefs on uni. Wonder what would have happened had it been a chef wanting to do a human? Well, I know. I feel like, well, we absolutely would have engaged that. I mean, it's probably legal because you can donate your body, your cadaver, to science. So I wonder, you might be able to donate it to art. You can. Actually, there's the guy who does the slices of humans. I would have put him in here. I was going to put him in here, but I don't like his art very much. But I like what he does. But um, yeah, we would have absolutely entertained that. I do have one question, though, about one of your inclusions, cane toad. Yeah, well, look, cane toad, for me, the best use of cane toad is leather. It's better than crocodile or alligator skin, totally ethical if you, you, know, if you agree that if you agree with the control methods that are already happening. And um, it's certainly more ethical than cow, and it's beautiful. So I think the leather is completely viable, and I just think if you could kind of scale up the production, because it's very boutique level at the moment, that that would make a lot of sense. It's gorgeous, but the food? Okay, I'm not sure. We don't have cane toads in Tasmania. So I ordered some. Yet. Yet. Yeah, well, uh, it'll heat up. Soon. <laughs> it'll heat up enough soon enough, but for now, it's too cold. Anyway, I ordered some cane toads from this very passionate guy, Dave McMahon, and he eats them all the time. He swears by it, as do all his friends. They're like they're delicious. You just catch them quick, 
lop off the back legs, skin immediately, soak in salt water, and you're great. And it's just like way better than a frog's leg. So I'm hearing this. I'm like, that sounds great. I want to try it. He sends them over, but the guy who sends them over, he didn't do the prep, and he sent them over whole. So they arrive covered in the milky poison that does cause cardiac arrest. So, <laughs> so I'm like, okay, maybe we don't want to eat those ones. We did the photo shoot, and we prepared it according to Dave McMahon's recipe, sweet and sour cane toad legs. It smelled and looked so good, it took all of my willpower not to eat them. I really wanted to eat them, but, you know... Ours were contaminated. So I believe them. They say they're delicious, and I totally believe them. Now, that said, one scientist did tell us that he thinks that one should not eat them, and I decided to include his warning as well. This is a sort of a natural progression for you, um, in a way, of your work and your body of work. But you have also worked on a bunch of other really interesting projects, many of which continue to this day, in that art food space. Um, 24 Carrot, which is carrot as in the vegetable, is a project that creates kitchen gardens in disadvantaged areas of Tasmania and New Orleans, where you um, moved in the year 2000. And Heavy Metal too, which is an art science project based on the mercury contamination of the River Derwent. So all these things that you do, is that do you consider that your art or is that something you do to inform your art or is it just something you do because No, I mean, 24 Karat is more just like a social conscience. This is indulgent. This is art. It's fun. It's um, me kind of exploring my own conceptual processes 24 Karat is pretty straightforward. It's kind of boring. It's just a fantastic garden program where young children in disadvantaged neighborhoods learn to grow vegetables, cook them, eat them, sell them, run their own business, and um, break the class barrier, sell to the best chefs, collaborate with the best chefs, and host you know big events. So I love 24 Karat. It's fantastic, but it, and I make it art full. You know, we integrate art into every. Thing. And that's what's so funny. You said, is it too beautiful? Well, my staff, you know, my team, the 24 Karat team, are always making fun of me because I always say, it has to be beautiful. It has to be beautiful. <laughs> Which, I mean, is some kind of weird elitist thing maybe, but it's just an innate drive. I can't help it. I want it to be beautiful. And it is. But it also Gardens makes are beautiful. It, exactly. And for the people that you're actually doing this for, it's a mark of respect to them to make totally. it beautiful. Totally. I mean, I have had interesting conversations about that. I just, we're having a war with the Uniting Church at the moment who decided they wanted our lot, like in the middle of the most degraded neighborhood. Nobody wanted it, been sitting there forever. Um, No trees, no nothing. Very, very down and out neighborhood. And we start growing food on it, having events, having a 24 carat garden, and then the church wanted it. So, I said, well, let's just work together, you know. But um, they didn't want to work with us because in expressing my vision for how the garden would progress, emphasizing the beauty of the design and the architecture, which doesn't mean cost. It just means care or kind of a way of seeing. And um, they felt it was inappropriate because you shouldn't have fancy-looking things in a poor neighborhood, that that's rude. And I feel the opposite. I think it's rude to do more like Venetian blind, I know they're back in style, but 
you know, Venetian blind, like drywall, low ceiling, fluorescent light buildings in poor neighborhoods. As if those people aren't worth. Exactly, exactly. And it's just a way of thinking. And artists and chefs, they understand that and they're always going to make it look great even if the budget is $500, you know, to build the shed. With Kaffa Forest Coffee, Lavazza is going back to the beginning with beans from the original coffee plant. This single-origin coffee is rich and intense with floral notes and the flavours of cherry and date. Add it to your menu. Lavazza, a supporter of the Melbourne Food and Wine Festival. Is it because there's a generational shift now and the next generation coming in and addressing the issue of climate change and sort of coming to grips with it better than yeah. the last generation? Yeah, because I th- and that's it. I think that an environmental conscience or just a way of seeing is so much more normal now that artists don't have to reject it because it's not associated with Birkenstock-wearing nerds, you know? Do artists feel like the rug's been pulled from under their feet a little bit, that they're losing their precious ground in terms of being different to the mainstream thinking? I don't think there's much risk of that. There's always a new territory to explore. You know, it's great. I mean, the whole point is, I actually, as an artist, I feel degraded. I know this sounds so terrible, but I feel degraded when I associate too closely with a moral... cause I feel like that's really not a good look for an artist does that make sense is that because it's a way of conforming no it's more like it's not nuanced that it's not appreciating gray area like artists are the ones who say well whatever you know it's all going into the sun in the end you're not supposed to kind of like get on a mission and get dualistic you're supposed to kind of maintain this awesome perspective that accommodates every view and accommodates duality, celebrates it and takes the piss out of it. And so as soon as you kind of start championing any cause, you sort of like start to see more normal or more worldly and you've sold out of this kind of grand perspective. And you've bought someone else's answers to it rather than your own perhaps. I think it's more the issue of telling people how they should behave, like that's so unattractive. But by 24 karat, kind of being 24 karat, I'm allowed to be a do-gooder doing some kind of good social work. And that's really not my art. But it's artful. Tell us about the rooster problem in Tasmania. This is one of the background stories that I loved about the tree changes moving Yeah, the roosters. So there's this place in Tasmania. Well, Tasmania's gotten more and more cool lately thanks to the foodie revolution and other things. But... Um, all these people decided, well, I want to be a foodie and live in this gorgeous way, and no judgment, I wanted to, too. I want to. So they did that, and they moved to Tasmania, but they don't know how to have chickens. So then they buy the chickens, and if you don't buy sexed chickens, you get roosters. They don't know that. So then they've got half roosters, and they're like, this is a nightmare, and my neighbor hates me. So then they... Yeah, 4am. So they gather up their roosters and they drop them. Everyone seemed to just, it was unspoken, there's no sign, but there's this one little place on the side of the highway and down on the way to the Huon Valley where everyone drops their rooster and it's full of roosters. I'm like, what's going on? Why are there so many roosters? So then it was explained to me. And meanwhile, we were having an eat the problem market at Mona 
And so we put up a sign at the dump-off spot that said, hey, tree changers, don't dump your rooster. Bring it to Mona and we'll put it in the pot. And we had this chef, you know, cooking them, coquevin. Can't speak French, but... And um, it was delicious. And I don't really eat meat normally, but I just had to have some of that. It was very good. Maybe if I ate normal chicken, I wouldn't think it was that good. But it was... Rooster's fine. This book comes with its own exhibition. So it's a pretty lucky book to actually have its own exhibition at Mona. There's some really, really beautiful ideas and very um, strong, sustainable ideas behind this exhibition. Just take us through as if we're all going to, as we all are, of course, going to book a flight to Hobart, straight to Mona for the exhibition. And I think you're launching it with a dinner. Yeah, it launches with a feast. And in the feast, everybody eats the menu, not this menu exactly, but, you know, an an invasive menu of nine courses. And like the book, it's monochrome. So each course is one color and featuring different invasive species. And it'll look basically like this, like you are from my view, where you just, you walk in and you'll just see this huge stairway, step by step. And each step has a table that's a key of um, the world's largest glockenspiel. So it's a musical instrument. And it's progressing in color from white all the way up to black. It seats 77 people. And um, you start, and you have to wear the color of your course. So you start at your color. You know where to sit. It's obvious. And then you move physically, musical chairs at the musical table, each course, and you taste that menu. And some of them are easy and really beautiful, and then some of them are extremely challenging. But they're still beautiful and they still taste good. And so then you just move through. Culminating in or somewhere towards the end, what happens when we get to the brown colour? Well, the brown is the shit course, the shit human course. (laughs) And so we're kind of thinking about that. I mean, the obvious safe way to do it is that you just have shit friendly, like gut microbiome friendly foods. So you've got all your twigs and psyllium cubes and what is the Japanese cube you get with your box when you're in Japan is like a a brown jelly thing made out of a mountain potato. There's all of these things that are just meant to kind of cleanse your guts and add to the microbiome, all the fermented foods. That's the obvious way to do it, but we are exploring, you know, more literal ways to do it. Like there's this Korean poo wine but we can't seem to get a hold of it. <laughs> so we are trying to challenge ourselves, but again, it won't, like, it won't actually have parasites in it or anything. It's going to be safe, but not safe kind of aesthetically. Are you working with um, the chef at Mona, Vince Trim, on this? Yeah, yeah. exactly. And he's, we have so much fun. We just he, play. He's, he spoke to me last week and said he was having, he was like, uh, Oh, he loves it. He found he this invasive it. wattle seed. Because I'm like, what are we going to do for the shit course? And there was some sheep's poo cheese I heard about. Our librarian is doing research on it. Everyone's excited. They're all researching, research, research. And so he comes uh, a couple days ago and he's like, you're never going to believe what I found. It's an invasive seed. I grew up with this in New Zealand. And he puts these wattle seeds in a grinder. And when you grind them up, they make this super pungent poo smell. 
And he wants to kind of have that as a moment in the feast, so you're not actually eating it, but you're smelling it, <laughs> and it was super offense. I actually thought it smelled good, which is weird, but everybody else was horrified. <laughs> I know this sounds a bit domestic, but is there a little recipe in there that we can just try this weekend at home? Well, some of them are really short. And simple. I mean, it, but it is a matter of getting the ingredients and yeah, like yeah. whether they're invasive in your area because it's site specific. It's not Tasmanian. Like you've got all the Mexican chefs; they're using things that are all over Mexico. But oh, I um, suppose sea urchin too. Because yeah, in Tasmania, all... there's billions of them. I don't know about here. Anyway, if you can get the ingredients, and amazingly, some of the greatest chefs. This is probably you know you all probably know more about this than I do. Being true foodies, I'm more on the art side, but like, you know, the Mugaritz chef, Andoni, his is so short. That's it. It's one page. Bam. Really simple. But then you've got other, others in their molecular gastronomy, and they're like four pages long, and you've got to dehydrate this, and then you've got to prepare this three months in advance, and you have to do all that. <laughs> I'm fascinated to know what Germaine Greer covered for you. Or Germaine Greer. Yeah, so that was an accident. That's the craziest thing. Germaine Greer was at Mona giving a talk, and it was like, you know, controversial, and these nude girls came out, and all this stuff happened. So she was fresh on, on my mind, but I meant to ask for Geraldine Brooks, and I said, um, hey, Elizabeth, call Germaine Greer and ask if she'll contribute to the book. So she does, and Jermaine Greer says, sure, I don't know any of this. Had I heard it again, I'd be like, wait, wrong person. But um, then, you know, she contributed, and it was so thorough, and her command of invasive species and how to prepare them is so nuanced and gorgeous that we used it as the first article in the book because it was just kind of, it worked as an overview. She kind of understood it all completely and celebrated it, and she's an amazing chef. Yes, there's a, a wonderful story of her coming back from Italy to Australia once with a being a great foodie. She brought back a whole jar of arborio rice with a beautiful white alba truffle nestled in the middle to infuse the rice with the truffle, except she was stopped by our super-efficient customs people on entering Australia who extracted the truffle, took the rice, put the truffle back in the jar and said, there's no way you're bringing that rice into Australia, and gave her the truffle to um, come oh, into Australia. I love which, which it. Was That's so gorgeous. amazing. <laughs> <laughs> but it makes sense, actually. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I'd love to hear a couple of questions. I know you will have some um, for Kiersha. So do we have any? We do. Thank you so much with microphones. Who would like to ask anything on the subject of, well food and art and um, politics and sustainability and environmentalism. Hi, I'm just wondering, should you not have sheep in there because they are an invasive species or cows should be in there? I don't think they are invasive. If you stop caring for the cows, they're not going to multiply in most environments. It's just that when sheep were introduced... That was the start of the invasive species. They sort of 
started to have an effect on what was already here. And I, I just thought well, it, is, it could be a rather not. sweet you idea know what, to include What you're sheep talking and cows. about are humans, because the sheep and the cows don't exist without the humans. Yeah. The, they're totally human dependent, so they're not invasive. The definition of invasive, you have to kind of be able to go out on your own and just take over and like kill everything else. So they don't, but they depend on us. But we keep them alive. It's our habit. So we are the issue in, that, in those species. Do we have another question for Kesha? Thank you. I was just interested if you've included rabbits in the book. The first <laughs> chapter of the book is rabbit. They are the closest to home invasive species for us at Mona. Our yard gets covered in them. So the first chapter of the book is rabbit. And, well, the first kind of substantial chapter, I should say. And that's Germaine Greer. She goes into rabbit. And she deals with white rabbit and black rabbit. And then you have Shannon Bennett. He does a recipe, and Vince Trim, our chef, does a recipe as well. I'm really interested because I have a property with lots of rabbits, and my big question is how do you get rid of them and how do you catch them without poisoning them? Well, you call Charles Wolf, who's Emily, who's over there's pest control man, and he will handle it. Okay. Handled. So that I can cook them? Yeah, yeah. One yeah, shot. How does he do this? this One is... shot to the forehead. He says, if you can't kill him with love, don't kill him at all. And so he just, bam, bam, bam. He came to Mona, and the, he just, he went out for 20 minutes, and he came back, and he just had tons of rabbits. And they all cooked them up. Well, this is what Vince Trim is actually quite angry about, your Mona chef, because he is quite happy to hunt, shoot, fish, etc. Quite happy to, he knows that all the farmers he works with have a problem with um, feral animals and they can cull them they can kill them but they can't then sell the yeah, meat it for infuriates us. it infuriates us i mean the good thing is we have so many social projects where we want to have great feasts for free for the a community so it works for us so we just get all these deer off of our property in marion bay which is the east coast of tasmania we never had deer only two years ago we were on a hike and suddenly there's deer they're just prancing across the property and it, they've just been increasing so I'm like they have got to go because we've gone through such a great effort I mean I know that sounds so like asshole-ish but so much effort's been made to remove the sheep from the property so that all the native animals could come back and they really have and it's amazing so anyway and we need to serve food we serve food all the time so I said let's just serve those and we have a farmer, he's amazing, and he's a one-shot-through-the-forehead kind of a guy, too. Someone's like, I just hope he stays mentally healthy. But, um, you know, like, we live there. <laughs> it's kind of unnerving to be on the same property with someone who's like, bam, yeah, one that's shot. the dangerous side of art. <laughs> but anyway, you know, he does it, and he's great. He seems very steady. And we cook them and we, we give them away for free. We have hungies for our 24 carat events and people love it. But what a shame that we can't sell them as well at Mona. And we don't want to sell cow anymore. We all decided we're not doing cow anymore. And actually that's interesting about the mental health of your farmer because mental health has been um, associated for so long with junk food, fast food, poor diet. And so keep him fed and well and happy and healthy. You've been listening to Kiersha Keshela in conversation with Jill Duplay at the Melbourne Food and Wine Festival, presented by the Bank of Melbourne. 
Melbourne Food and Wine Festival is made possible with the support of Visit Victoria. I'm Pat Nurse. Thanks for listening. Thank you.